if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 20 and 21. There's an outline in the bulletin, and also you'll see it on the screen if your eyes are good enough to see it there. Have you ever been given something valuable to guard? The responsibility you take on is is one of being able to give it back to the person in the same condition it was uh, given to you. Maybe you've been given, uh, some of you men, maybe you've been a best man at a wedding and been given the ring. Who did you give yours to, Jason? To Justin. Yes, so Justin had this, this responsibility of giving it back to you in the same condition that you gave it back to him. We want to protect the things that are valuable. Uh, Jody and I keep our important papers, birth certificates uh, and such, in a, a fire-safe cabinet. And I can it's the second one we've owned, because I can tell you from experience that they do work. They protect the valuables from a destructive outside influence, in this case, fire. In the passage, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you have something to guard, something to keep in good condition, something to protect from destructive outside influences. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We'll explore the command, the threats to fulfilling the command, which are very real in every generation, and help in fulfilling the command. Thank God that is real every day we live. So first of all, the command, verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Now note the earnestness of the command in the little word O. When Paul uses this interjection with people in view, it it was always to impress upon them the weight of what he's saying to them. Let me give you some examples of that. We're talking about the phrase, Oh, Timothy. That should wake Timothy up. What's he going to say next in this letter? In Romans 2, 3, uh, Paul writes, and this has to do with the weight of personal sinfulness. Do you suppose this, O oh man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment? of God, the weight of personal sinfulness. In Romans 9, Paul uses it to impress upon the readers the weight of God's sovereignty over man. Chapter 9, verse 19, you can see these on the outline. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? In 1 Corinthians 7, it is the weight of God's will for the permanence of marriage. Listen, how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Speaking to those who, because of salvation, found themselves unequally yoked. No, there's permanence to marriage. That's God's will. You stay in that marriage. In 2 Corinthians 6, it is the weight of acknowledging Paul's faithfulness as an apostle that he is asking of the Corinthians, rightly so. Our mouth has spoken 
freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. And now at the end of his instructions to one charged with the weighty task of guiding the church at Ephesus and other places Timothy would be, but as this letter is written at Ephesus, charging Timothy in the task of guiding them to be faithful to Christ, Paul writes, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. There's earnestness here. Wake up and listen, church. And then there's the action of the command. It is to guard, that is to defend, to protect, to keep something safe. Like shepherds in Luke 2, same word, were keeping watch over their flock by night. Like the demoniac in Luke 8 was kept, same word, bound with chains and fetters. Like Jesus, who in the prayer for the eleven still with him says, I guarded them and not one of them perished. Like God preserved Noah when he brought a flood upon the water. Timothy must faithfully watch over that which has been committed into his care. Now think of those who, uh, you see them around, armored trucks, so you think of those who pick up money or deliver money to stores. They come equipped for the task to guard that which has been entrusted to them. There's usually at least two people. They have an armored truck. They have weapons. In my first job ever as a... uh, clerk at Baskin Robbins in Laurel. By the way, I worked myself up to some responsibility, making $1.90 an hour by the time I ended that job. Back in the day when minimum wage didn't mean anything to to Baskin Robbins anyway. But hey, it was a job. I think it cost my parents as much gas to take me there before I got my license and and me gas. But anyway, Uh, I would make after-hour money drops at a bank across the parking lot behind the store. Uh, I would do that alone without an armored truck, without weapons, okay? It's just the way things, it's the way we did things. Well, one night, one evening, uh, somebody who knew our routine surprised me and wrestled the money bag away from me. Well, instinctively, I felt what Timothy is to feel here I felt I must guard the money. Now, you can say that was stupid, and I would agree with you, but that's what I felt. So in my athletic prime as a member of the Glenelg High School golf team, I gave chase, and I caught up with the thief and then promptly got hit across the face and knocked down by the lock on the money bag. It was heavy enough to uh, knock me to the ground. I came to my senses. I got up. And I ran again back to the store to call the store owner and the police what I should have done at the beginning. But I want you to know there was that sense of responsibility. Maybe you have felt that about something given to you that was valuable. Now, that was just instinctive. Maybe you've thought about it when you've decided, well, yes, I can accept that. I'll keep that safe for you. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Protect what is placed in your charge. Be ready when it's threatened. Keep it safe. And then the object of the command, the what has been entrusted to you. The word word entrusted reflects the highest kind of 
sacred obligation in Paul's society, namely keeping safe a treasured possession while another is away. It was used uh, as a banking term. It shows up in parables of Jesus, or at least the idea shows up in parables of Jesus. But it was used as a banking term referring to a sum of money that you would uh, deposit and the bank would be responsible for it, to be able to return it, hopefully, with interest. So what has been entrusted to Timothy? Paul doesn't name it in these two verses, but context shows that it is the sound doctrine of the gospel. Paul has been entrusted with the gospel from the Lord. That he tells in the letter to the Thessalonians, but also in this letter, 1 Timothy. Let me read those references. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. Listen to Paul. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, you hear that, we are entrusted by the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. So I'm, I'm telling you, Paul has been entrusted with the gospel. I'm making the case that that's what he entrusts Timothy with. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 10 and 11, Speaking of immoral men and homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul entrusted Timothy with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Namely, what is that gospel? Well, one passage that we read to summarize it, that was read in Sunday school lesson this morning from Pastor Matt, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins. And that little phrase right there is a way of summarizing the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's how Paul boils down in a nutshell the facts of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Of course, if you were explaining the gospel, you would tell why he died, what happened on the cross. He bore the wrath of God. The death, the burial made sure it proves that he was dead. The resurrection proves that God was pleased with his death. And he finished the work that he was sent to the cross to do. The death, burial, resurrection. Of this gospel, Paul states for the record in Galatians chapter 1, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul understood that, that he was entrusted with that revelation. He understood that the truth of the gospel belongs to God, and he was entrusted with it. And we in the church, especially pastors, have been entrusted to guard it. I say especially pastors because we're up here talking about it. We need to do that accurately and correctly and abundantly. Paul, Timothy, and everyone who has come to know the truth will answer to God for how we have guarded it. So when God's truth is attacked or misrepresented, we must guard it by standing firm, knowing the facts, knowing the implications of the truth of Jesus Christ, continuing to teach what the scripture declares to be true. Now let's look at the threats 
to fulfilling the command. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter about that. Verse 20. And that would be turning from anything not based on God's revelation. That's what Paul is he's presenting that either or. It's either from God or it's not. It's worldly and empty. And the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Apparently there were false teachers claiming that what they had to say was equally important to what Paul was saying. Anything said to be true and from God which is false is what that second of the opposing arguments would be that are falsely called knowledge. So false teachers then, false teachers now, uh, claim to have this superior knowledge. The exact content of the opposing arguments and false knowledge, it's not stated here. But we can learn in First and Second Timothy that it came from within the church. That's important. It was characterized, uh, he writes, by concern for fables and myths on one, in one passage, by genealogies, quarrels about words, controversies, meaningless talk, worldly and empty chatter, as we see here. Examples in the two letters include prohibition of marriage, prohibition of certain foods, and belief that the resurrection of the saints had already taken place. So false thinking, false teaching, like the resurrection's already taken place, and then a reverting back to something we do to gain merit for ourselves before God not getting married, avoiding certain foods. Second Timothy chapter 2 is, is an example of the worldly and empty chatter. Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, he names names here, and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And they upset the faith of some. So here's the threat. Distracting people's attention from the proclaimed gospel. The death, resurrection, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the necessity and sufficiency of Christ alone. These, this chatter, this worldly chatter, this false knowledge was distracting people from that. In verse 21 shows the danger of this false knowledge, which some have professed. Now, that's a strong word. It means they've come to stand there. They've, they've believed it, and they stand upon it now. They're, they're professing it, and thus gone astray from the faith. They do not believe the faith, the truth from God, the scriptures, and especially in view here, the revelation God gave through Paul of salvation in Christ alone, through his death to satisfy the wrath of God and, and resurrection. Now, I would say in verse 21, in case you have a question as you read it, that these who have professed and thus gone astray from the faith went astray from being among those who were pro proclaiming the true faith, but that they never had it themselves. Because in Scripture, we don't see that. We see that salvation is an eternal work that God does in the heart. So I believe these in verse 21 had never been saved, but had been among the community of faith in some way and left it to believe something else. I notice Timothy is to avoid, turn from this stuff as he gives leadership 
that fits what Paul says elsewhere. In other words, the alternative would be, well, let's, let's have a class about it so I can refute it. No, he's to avoid it. In Colossians 2.8, Paul said to the Colossians, and Jason, I guess you're going to be teaching this, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So to avoid, to ignore such teachers in their false doctrine, to not even waste time refuting them becomes the example for the church to follow. Don't give them an opportunity for an audience. And not doing that, you take away their potential for damaging the church. See, the church is not a forum for any and every new idea based on our best thoughts. We're not going to give people who want to say what they think is true a place to say it in the church. That's part of guarding the gospel. So we understand the truth from the scriptures. They point to Christ. They reveal Christ. They call for faith in Christ. And that's what you can expect whenever someone stands to teach in this church. Let me just say, give you an example of this in our recent years that we've gone through the pandemic. The coronavirus virus pandemic provided opportunity for a lot of speculation from those who recklessly attached current events to prophecies of Scripture. And I've said that in a general way for a purpose, attach current events to prophecies of Scripture. I know the prophecies are going to come true, and when they come true, there will be current events taking place. But listen, this has been done before. World War I, World War II, the Cuban Missile Crisis, 9-11. Many people were recklessly tying current events to prophecies of Scripture, and such speculation is a distraction that leads people away from the faith. It's not healthy for Christians. It's not healthy for the church. Are there things we learn in those times? Of course we do. And of course, Scripture comes to bear. But not recklessly saying, this must be this in the book of Revelation and such. Uh, let me just, you may know some about it and you may not, but it was done and it causes and still causes problems. When guarding the gospel, we cannot be distracted by engaging in fruitless debate. Paul tells Timothy here, avoid it. So at North Hartford Baptist Church, that's what we do. We avoid it. Okay? And that's what we will continue to do. All right, number three, the help to fulfill the command. I love this phrase in Scripture. I try to slow down whenever I read it at the end or the beginning of a letter. Grace be with you. Now, the earliest manuscripts had a plural here, grace be with you all. Because th these letters were meant to be read and heard by the church, even though it is addressed to Timothy, the pastor of the church. Paul here is confident of God's grace to help Timothy and the church, of course. Look, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. Paul, in a latter time of life, writes, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard, same language, what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the, stand, the standard of sound words 
Timothy, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The, the same concern and prayer he had at the end of his first letter he has again in this last letter to Timothy. He is looking to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to give help, to give grace. And indeed, they are active in helping us guard the truth, helping pastors, helping teachers, and all believers keep the main thing the main thing, which is the gospel. Teaching and answering critical questions such as that people have, such as, am I a sinner? Well, I hope you could go to your Bible and show someone, yes, you are. How can I be forgiven? Well, through repentance, through faith, through faith particularly is where Scripture leads us to camp. And what does that look like? We can explain that to people. Who is Jesus, God the Son? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross for me? Well, he's the only one who can satisfy God's holy wrath and justice. Do I really deserve that for my sin, eternal death? I hope you could answer from the scripture, yes. Could I, how could Jesus die the death that I deserved? I hope you could explain, uh, go to a verse that I'll go to in a minute, in a minute, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. There's substitution that takes place that was God's will, that Jesus come and be the substitute sacrifice. Why does God accept Jesus' death as mine? Why? Because of who Jesus was, the perfect lamb, and because of his love and wanting to save souls, he accepts Jesus' death. Why couldn't someone else die for me instead of Jesus? Well, there's no other, no other perfect sacrifice. These are just examples of guarding the gospel. These are questions that ought to be, we pray would be, in the minds of the lost. But there's a lot of distraction in the world. And they're not thinking of these questions, but we need to be ready to bring them to these questions if they're not thinking of them. And if they are or when they are thinking of them, that you would be able to answer these questions. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a beautiful summary. By the way, it was my, the text of the first message I ever preached here in, in view of coming as an associate pastor. He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did you hear it? He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on the cross. Sin was placed upon him, died on our behalf, died the death, took the wrath of God, so that we might become the righteousness, we might have forgiveness in him, since that sin is covered, paid for. How does that forgiveness come? By turning to Jesus, believing in Jesus, that he did what was necessary for God to forgive you of your sin. Every time we teach the gospel, turning to implication now, every time we teach the gospel and teach its implications accurately, we show that we are successfully guarding it. And in a sense, we are giving what has been entrusted to us back to God in the same condition that it was given to us. How can you help as a member of the church? I've already said, know the gospel, know how to communicate the gospel, have a gospel mindset, 
an eternal perspective, a missionary attitude, a compassionate heart, not only to give to Annie Armstrong, but to look at the people around you as you walk through this world. And don't be captivated and thus distracted by teachings that are not biblical and not essential to the gospel. So look at the passage again. O Timothy. Could we insert there? I think we could for application. O North Hartford Baptist Church. O pastors, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this exhortation that we want to take personally, that your church today must take personally. We thank you that by your grace, you awakened in us understanding and faith in the gospel. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and what it meant, what was accomplished. Thank you for awakening that, bringing us to repentance and faith by your Spirit. And thank you for joining us together as your church here. We want to be faithful to guard the gospel. Help us in that going forward, we pray. Father, we thank you now for the opportunity to demonstrate our faith, celebrate our faith and so, as we celebrate the gospel in the Lord's Supper. So I pray, Father, we would do that with hearts of thankfulness, hearts of sincerity. And Father, I pray for any here who is not yet a Christian, who has not yet placed their faith in the necessity and sufficiency of what Jesus did upon the cross. I, I pray, Father, that they would. I know that's a prayer for your Holy Spirit to work in their heart, to draw them to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, to put a burden on their heart of their sin debt and the consequence of that, eternal hell. Father, would you do that in the hearts of unbelievers, we pray, and draw them to faith in Christ that we might celebrate with them the gospel, showing its power and strength again. Father, we pray for that. We thank you for this time in our church's life where we bond together, where we show our unity, uh, that the reason we're here is, is in our faith in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. So, yes.